Greetings. You have found Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class and the podcast that I have entitled The Gospel Comes to Life. This week we'll be looking at the gospel for the feast day of the ascension of Jesus. And it's an exciting gospel that is combined with the first reading that gives us a great deal of insight into the events that uh, transpired after the resurrection of Jesus, but before his departure from the earth, the ascension, in anticipation then of the biblical feast of Pentecost, which the disciples were told to prepare themselves for 10 days after the event we celebrate this weekend. Now, many of you know that I teach in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And if you're interested in this sort of verse-by-verse commentary through Scripture, uh, do feel free to find me at my ArizonaBibleClass.com website, where you can see the list of all the books and the lectures that I have delivered. All of them are available for purchase. So take advantage of that. It's a great way to sort of grasp a bit more knowledge than you had before about any particular book in the Bible. Now, since this is a feast day, we're going to focus not only on the gospel, but also on the first reading, because it's the first reading this week that gives us the details about the event that we call the Ascension. And in point of fact, in the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, There is no mention of the Ascension, nor will you find the Ascension mentioned in Matthew or Mark or in the Gospel of John. It's only referenced in the Gospel of Luke, and then again for a second time in Dr. Luke's second volume, which is the Book of Acts. So we see mentioned at the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, I'll go there in just a moment, the event we call the Ascension, and then as the narrative that we call the Book of the Acts of the Apostles opens, will open in the first 12 verses with, again, a recounting of the events on that day. Now, let me begin by reflecting briefly on a very brief gospel that comes to us in Matthew's 28th chapter. The gospel actually begins in verse 18, but a couple of verses in advance, set the scene for us. We read in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, that the 11 disciples, that is obviously those disciples minus Judas, went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. And I'm going to imagine that location would have been well known and marked geographically in the minds of three of those 11 disciples. We'll call them apostles as well. And their names, Peter, James, and John. The three of them had witnessed the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus there in Matthew chapter 17. Now, when they saw him in verse 17, they worshiped him, but they also doubted. Now, that's not part of the gospel reading. It's actually the line just before the gospel opens for this weekend's liturgy. But I want to focus on it just for a moment. Because when they saw Jesus, they saw the Lord who had appeared to them to the best of our knowledge, not once, 
but twice already after he had conquered the grave. And they see him now, again, chronologically, for the third time. And, of course, the proper response is to worship him. But why the doubt? Doesn't that give you cause to pause and consider what Matthew was trying to convey? I think the doubt was about what would be next. I mean, Jesus has done everything he said he was going to do, and he told them that he would suffer, die, and be buried, and three days later would rise on the other side of death's embrace. And he had accomplished that. So what could possibly remain to be done? That's the doubt. What's next? Well, Jesus approached them. That's the opening of our gospel. And said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I'm going to commission you. Go, therefore, and make disciples like I made you so you make others of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, or training them up in the way that I have trained you up. We pause and remind ourselves that in the biblical narrative, when we read about the nations, all the nations, it's always a reference to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. Obviously, the 11 who are commissioned are Jewish. There's no doubt about that. And of course, the mission to the Jews will obviously continue. But they're given a greater commission, and that is that the message of salvation is going to reach the ends of the earth, which, remember, to their way of thinking, would have been the extremities of the Roman Empire at that time. That was the earth that they were aware of. And in addition, their evangelistic efforts in baptizing, bringing people into the faith community, would be among not only the Jews, but all the nations, which means the Gentiles, right? Because the Jews are God's people. Everyone else in the Bible is part of the various numbered nations of the world. And you will teach them, as I just mentioned, to observe all that I commanded you. So how is that going to be possible? Well, you're going to need additional training. And we learn, and we'll see this in just a moment, that it is in the next 40 days that they will receive this training from Jesus in advance of returning to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will be ascending into heaven before their very eyes. And then he says, Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And that promise is still in effect. So again, we know this point in the training of the apostles begins with this commission and will be completed 40 days later when Jesus will then ascend into heaven, having told the eleven to, with others in their company, wait in Jerusalem until power will come upon them from on high. Now let's pause and go to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are a two-volume work. Our author is a Gentile follower of Jesus who came to faith 
in Christ through the evangelistic efforts of the apostle to the Gentiles, that is, St. Paul. Luke, as a gospel author, comes to faith from a medical background. He's actually, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, referred to as my good and dear friend, Dr. Luke. And in fact, he uses in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts a good number of very technical medical terms that are not found in the similar accounts of Matthew and Mark. Now, the last three verses of the Gospel of Luke are dedicated to the event we call the Ascension. That's the biblical feast that the church will be celebrating this coming week. And in verse 50 of Luke chapter 24, assuming that a 40-day period of advanced teaching and training has come to an end, remembering that 40 is a number that we generally associate in the Bible with enough time for something new to appear. 40 days of fasting, 40 days of temptation, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Again, this idea that the duration or the amount of time is enough for something new to be birthed into the world. And these disciples have been trained by Jesus. They're advancing in their studies. They're now doctored, degreed followers of Jesus. And after that process comes to an end, in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, he, meaning Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. Remember, that is the village home of the good friends of Jesus, Lazarus, and his sisters, Martha and Mary. And he raised his hands and he blessed them. And as he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. He ascended into heaven. They did him homage there and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple precinct praising God. Now, the exact details of the ascension event are going to be treated in the first chapter of the book of Acts. But there's another interesting point of reference also found in the gospel of Luke concerning this event that we'll call, as part of the church calendar, the Feast of the Ascension. It's actually found in the Gospel of Luke, and it has to do with the event that is called the Transfiguration. So in Luke chapter 9 and in verse 28, eight days after spending time with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Remember that mountain is probably the same location on the foothills leading to the heights of Mount Hermon, which is north of Caesarea Philippi that we referenced earlier in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Now, while he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were conversing with him. Not insignificant. One of them, Moses, and the other, Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish 
in Jerusalem. That's a new narrative detail. That detail is not found in Matthew chapter 17, nor is it found in the Markan account of the Transfiguration. It's unique to this recounting of that historical event in the Gospel of Luke. Who would have been Luke's source for what transpired on that mountain on that day? Probably John, the youngest apostle, who has been given the custody of Mary until the end of her days, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so we can place John and Mary for a significant amount of time in the ancient biblical city of Ephesus, where Paul founded a church in his second missionary journey. We can also place Paul, along with his associates, chief among them, Luke, who will later be the gospel author, and the author of the book of Acts, in the same city at the same time. Luke is a trained journalist. In fact, this is how his gospel opens. Since many, this is Luke chapter 1 verse 1, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning, that would certainly include Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the youngest of the twelve apostles, and ministers of the word, have handed them down to us. In verse 3, I too, Luke says, have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, once again, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teaching you have received. Luke is well-educated, and he has investigated everything accurately once again in order to put it down in the Gospel of Luke so that future generations will be able to read and learn and know more about Jesus. Now, unique to the Transfiguration account found only in the Gospel of Luke is this knowledge that we glean about what the two figures of biblical significance, Moses and Elijah, were speaking to Jesus about. Again, Matthew mentions that Jesus was conversing with Elijah and Moses, as does Mark, but they say nothing about what the subject of the conversation was. Luke must have asked John, what were they talking about? And the answer, well, I come back then to Luke chapter 9, verse 31, they spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. That exodus is not the exodus or the exiting of the tomb, but rather they were speaking to him about the way that he would leave Jerusalem. They were speaking to him about the event we call the ascension. Now, pause here and realize that what we know about Moses and Elijah inform this potential conversation. Because we know that in 2 Kings, Elijah the prophet rides a fiery chariot into heaven. He ascends into heaven and at the same time is assumed into heaven as part of his ascension into heaven. The fiery chariot courses into the heavens and disappears from the sight of Elisha and other members of the prophetic company. 
We don't have that detail about Moses, although we do know that in Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses ascends to the height of Mount Nebo where God requires his life of him. And try as he might, Joshua sending up search parties is not able to locate the body of Moses nor his fresh grave, if you will. Of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it says that God buried him and that's the way you would understand the fact that he didn't return from the height of Mount Nebo, but by the time of Jesus, a tradition had developed in Judaism, which maintained that Moses, like Elijah, would, at a later date, and like Enoch of Genesis chapter 5 had done at an earlier time, was also assumed into heaven. If you are assumed into heaven, then you can appear on the earth because your body has not suffered the indignities of death. That's why the Catholic faith community honors the apparitions of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, also assumed into heaven. And so she can appear, as we know she did, in the Americas to Juan Diego. And we have our feast of Guadalupe that we celebrate as a result. This is just one of the many examples, Lourdes, Fatima, and others, Medjugorje, uh, that remember visitations of Our Lady. So, that's what Elijah and Moses have in common. Both of them, by the time of Jesus, were believed to have been assumed into heaven. That's part of the biblical tra tradition in regard to Elijah, and part of the text or census fidelum of the people of Jesus' day. In fact, there was an apocryphal text that didn't carry the weight of Scripture, but it was read in the synagogues at the time of our Lord, and that text was called the Assumption of Moses. If you're assumed into heaven, you also ascend into heaven as part of your journey. So again, I come back then to Luke chapter 9. Elijah and Moses appear, and they're speaking with Jesus about the exodus he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were speaking to him about his ascension. Now, all of that helps us then return to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, our first reading for this coming weekend, will be from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And now we control the backstory. So we understand the significance of this bridge experience that takes us from the end of the first volume of two volumes written by St. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and helps us open the second volume, that is, the Acts of the Apostle. So, with that in mind, allow me to read and comment on Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up, that is, until the day he ascended into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, a 40-day period of advanced teaching and training. Listen, he presented himself alive to them, by many proofs, after he had suffered, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking during that time 
about the kingdom of God. Remember, the doubt was, where do we go from here? Well, we have more training that we need to receive. And so Jesus completed that teaching about the kingdom of God breaking forth on to the earth. Now, in verse 4, while meeting with them during that 40-day period, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but rather to wait for the promise of the Father about which you have heard me speak. And you remember that promise was given to the apostles at the event we call the Last Supper, that Seder meal that was shared by Jesus with his apostles and others in advance of his passion. And so I'll remind you of that promise as well. In John chapter 14, verse 15 and following, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another parakletos, another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with you always, the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it. But, listen carefully, you know of it because it remains with you in the person of Jesus and will be in you, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So returning then to Acts chapter 1. In verse 4, while meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which you have heard me speak, again, during his public ministry. And I'm sure during this time of advanced training, the 40 days leading to the event we'll call the Ascension, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And of course, that will occur on Pentecost, 10 days after the event we call the Feast of the Ascension. Now, when they had gathered together, in verse 6, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is that part of the plan? Have we been prepared for this eventuality? We wonder what is next now that we know all that we know about you. But he answered them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first. That's Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 9. And then throughout Judea, even into Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. Remember the Great Commission? You will take the message of the kingdom of God to all the nations. All the nations to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, the ends of the Roman Empire, its boundaries, which is populated most whole and entire by Gentiles. You see, so there's a dovetailing between the Great Commission and the statement of Jesus that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then throughout Judea, and north to Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, here it comes, 
he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. If Jesus is riding a cloud, then we know exactly where he's going. If you're Jewish, it is obvious. He's going into the throne room of the Father. How do we know that? Well, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. As the visions, the prophet Daniel reminds us, during the night continued, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, right? As a form of conveyance, one like a son of man. I saw in my vision what appeared to be a male human being. And he's riding a cloud, heading somewhere, well, into heaven's embrace. Because in his vision, Daniel remembers, when he reached the Ancient of Days, that's the name of God, and was presented before him, he, meaning this male figure, received dominion, splendor, and kingship. All nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him, his dominion. I recognized, I realized, I understood, is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, his kingship one that shall not be destroyed. It was this vision of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, which gave rise to the belief that Daniel had seen a vision of the Messiah. And at this point in history moving forward, the turn of a phrase, which was used to speak about any male person, son of man, became a title that was synonymous with the Messiah. That's why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's a messianic claim. It's a title that he uses when he introduces himself to others, wondering if he is in fact God's chosen agent. Now I come back to Acts chapter 1, and again in verse 10, while they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight, and while they were looking intently at the sky, as Jesus disappears higher and higher, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them, angels. They said, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from heaven, uh, I'm sorry, this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will return in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. And so they then returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day's journey away. There are two churches on the heights of the Mount of Olives, which remember this particular site. The one that I'm most familiar with is the one that is going to celebrate the Feast of the Ascension from the Western calendar, as opposed to the Greek Orthodox Easter calendar. That particular location is actually owned by the Muslim faith community, and they charge an admission to visit that site. And so very few Christians ever visit, even those like myself, who live for over a year in the old city. You wait until one of the two feast days of the Ascension, from the Western calendar and the other from the Eastern calendar. And for that brief 24-hour period of that 
feast day, the Muslims don't require admission. And Christians literally by the thousands flock there and liturgy after liturgy after liturgy is performed in as many different languages uh, for the duration of those 24 hours. And then as quickly as it began, it ends until the next year's feast day. I was blessed to be able to participate myself and it's quite exciting because there is a church there and in that church, a stone upon which it is believed Jesus took his last step from this earth into heaven as he ascended on the clouds. And so it is believed that that will be where the Lord will return one day. Well, we did a lot together and we looked at a good number of biblical passages. You should be proud of yourself. I never tire of reminding you of what a great student you are. I do hope that these reflections help the gospel come to life so that attending liturgy you're ready and you're prepared to hear what the priest or the deacon is going to preach. Preaching is how we get the word from our minds into our heart and it will transform the way then we live out the course of our lives. I'm a teacher and I pray for the preachers but for now that's all this teacher can do. Never forget what a great student you are. God bless and good day.